Today we're going to look at the, the greatest evidence to the truth of Christianity. This is the thing that the apostles pointed to and proclaimed whenever they preached the gospel. And it's the thing that we need to remember when we proclaim the gospel to our friends and family and co-workers and really when we proclaim the gospel to all nations. It's the thing that Jesus points to in our passage today when the scribes and Pharisees asked for a sign. And the thing which provides the greatest evidence of the truth of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, before Jesus' death, Jesus predicted not only that he would die and that he would be crucified, how he would die, but also that he would rise from the dead on the third day. The resurrection is the final proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The resurrection declares that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is God the Son in human flesh, that he is the Savior of the world. The resurrection of Jesus is our hope, because in it, it points forward to, to our resurrection. We, because Jesus has risen, we will rise too. We will be raised from the dead in the same way that he was. In Matthew 12, 38 to 45, which is our text this morning, Matthew 12, 38 to 45, Jesus offers his resurrection as a sign of his authority. And the section we're going to look at today kind of brings us to really to the end of this whole section that focused on the rejection of Jesus Christ. We've been looking at, at Matthew chapter 11 and 12, and those chapters have shown us that Israel didn't respond to the ministry of Jesus. They didn't repent when he called them to repent. And as we think back at the context, I, I want to point out again how organized Matthew is in the way that he presents what he presents here. Remember in 11, so just kind of a little review here, in 11 verses 1 to 19 showed us John the Baptist. And John the Baptist began to doubt about who Jesus was, and, and, and Jesus compared this generation, they were like children complaining in the marketplaces about their playmates. And then in verses 20 to 24, in the second part of chapter 11, Jesus told us, about, and, and he began to denounce the cities where he did most of his mighty works because they did not repent. And so there's these two kind of hints of, of, of a failure to respond by Israel, and then in verses 25 to 30, there's kind of this little hint of good news where we saw that the Father had revealed who Jesus was to the little children. And then Jesus called all who who are weary and heavy laden to come to him. And then so chapter 11 went bad, bad, and then a little hint of good. And, and chapter 12 follows the same pattern. And so in chapter 12, verses 1 to 21, there's this initial conflict with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. And then in chapter, or verse 22 to 45, we saw the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then at the very end of chapter 12, we're going to see another little hint of good again in verses 46 to 50. We're going to study that next week, but Jesus refers to those who do the will of the Father as part of his family. And so again, chapter 11 and 12 kind of go bad, bad, and a little hint of good as we see the response to Jesus Christ. And, and what that does is it really divides everything into two. There's, there's people who are hostile to Jesus Christ, 
And there's people who are part of his family. Or, or another way we could say it is there's people who are for Christ and people who are against Christ. And what we've seen is there's really no neutral ground that Jesus lives. You're either for him or against him. And so let's look at the kind of the, the closing section that shows the rejection of Christ. And that's again, Matthew 12, starting in verse 38. That's our text for today. It says there, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up against well, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. And so as I said, this is the end of the rejection narrative, Matthew 11 and 12. The Pharisees had said back in verse 24 that it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They had seen him do miracle after miracle and they couldn't deny it. And so they decided to say that he only cast out demons by the power of the devil. Jesus answered their accusations and then he warned them that they needed new hearts. And he warned them about the coming judgment. And we saw that in verses 33 to 37 last week. And now they come back after Jesus' response and they want a sign. And we're going to look at this under four headings today. And the, the first one is the evil demand in verses 38 and the first part of 39. So we see, first of all, the evil demand. Look at it again in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now the word there translated then at the beginning of verse 38, it's often really used rather loosely in Matthew, but here it does seem that this follows immediately after or shortly after the whole blasphemy of the Spirit incident. See, the, the, these Pharisees had seen Jesus heal the blind mute man. And if you look at Matthew 12, verse 22, then a, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed in verse 23, and they said, can this be the son of David? But the Pharisees said in verse 24, again, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And so they've seen the miracles and even the exact miracles that the scriptures said would, would the, that the Messiah would do, 
And they had seen these miracles and they rejected them and they said it is by the power of Satan that he does this. But now they come back and they ask for a sign. And listen how Luke describes this request. This is a Luke eleven fifteen and 16. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And so they ask this to test him. In other words, it's not a genuine request. They're trying to test Christ. They're trying to really tempt him or trap him. And they call him when they come. They say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And it seems kind of respectful, but whenever we see that word teacher in Matthew, it's almost always used on the lips of those who are hostile towards Jesus. And so they want to see a sign. And, and they want what they want really is more evidence. You know, what they've seen so far is not enough for them. They want to see more. They want some proof, some hard evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And it seems that they're asking then for something that's even more significant than what Jesus had already pointed John to, which we saw in chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. And so remember, John was beginning to doubt, and and he sent his disciples, you know, are you the one to come, or should we look for another? And then chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And remember what John points, or what Jesus points John to here are all in the book of Isaiah. And so Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah chapter 61, all of that is kind of put together here. And Jesus then is pointing John back to the scriptures and he's saying, in effect, the scriptures have been fulfilled, John. The the very things that Isaiah said the Messiah would do, I am doing right now before your disciples. Don't be offended by me. Instead, believe that I am who I say I am. And the Pharisees, who should have really been experts in the law, and they should have known these scriptures, they saw these same miracles, but they wanted more. Now, the Old Testament does show certain prophets at certain times granting signs, but not because unbelieving people demand them. And sometimes signs were given to confirm a prophet as God's spokesman. And they were given to, to kind of show the people that the, the, the people who, the, the men and the prophets who were doing these signs were truly God's representatives on the earth. But the thing is here is that Jesus has done the very signs that were supposed to identify him. And the Pharisees, instead of receiving that, they said that it was satanic. And then they demand even more signs. And demand is really the right word here. In verse 38, it says, they kind of present this nicely. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus replies in verse 39 with an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And the word there translated seeks is an intensified form of the word that has the idea of insisting on demanding, strongly desiring. And so the idea here is that Jesus is recognizing they are demanding a sign from him. And Jesus says that this seeking of a sign is itself a sign, a sign of an evil and adulterous generation. They've rejected the scriptural signs that God gave them. Instead, they're demanding their own sign. They want God to do something supernatural for them, 
to show them than to prove that Jesus is the Christ. But here's the thing, if you think about it, if Jesus does a sign, if Jesus grants their request, what's going to happen? What would keep them from saying that this new sign was just done by the power of Beelzebul as well? And there's something important for us to understand here, and it's this, that signs and wonders don't create faith. Signs and wonders don't create faith, and you see that all through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Signs and wonders don't create faith. And what the Pharisees need here is really not more evidence. They don't need new evidence. What they need is new hearts. They need a spiritual transformation, and that's what Jesus told them, which we already saw last week in verses 34 and 35, where he says, "'You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil?' For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And so what they need is new hearts, not new evidence. And even in the Old Testament, there was this possibility of false signs and lying wonders. And Deuteronomy 13 warns about these false prophets who are going to give false signs. And the way to know for sure if somebody truly represented the Lord was to compare what they said with Scripture. And that's exactly the thing that the Pharisees here aren't doing. They're not comparing, they're not going back to the Scripture and seeing if if Jesus is doing the signs that the Messiah was going to do. You see, the reality is they had enough evidence, but what they really needed was a heart to obey God and a heart to follow after Jesus Christ. And until they had that new heart, they would continue to make excuses to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same thing really applies to us. Until we have a new heart, we're going to make excuses and and find reasons why we don't believe and follow Christ. In fact, even when they had the ultimate evidence, even when Jesus rose from the dead, as he said he would, even then, they found reasons to deny it so that they could continue in their rebellion against God. And see, these these Pharisees and scribes, they were really religious rebels. They seemed to serve God on the outside, but inwardly they were selfish and self-centered and hostile towards God. And they refused to obey the gospel and they refused to come to Jesus Christ, their Messiah. And just to kind of see this, even before we get there, I want you to turn to Matthew 28. Because Jesus is going to point them to the sign of his resurrection. But even after his resurrection, Matthew 28 verse 9 the Pharisees are going to find a reason not to believe it. And so Matthew 28, starting at verse 9, And behold, this is after the resurrection, Jesus met them, met his disciples, and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of him. Uh, they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Verse 11, and while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. 
And you see, Jesus knew that this is exactly how they would respond. And so he said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks to see a sign. And I want you to turn now to a parable in Luke chapter 16, where we see a similar thing here. Go over to Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We'll just start in chapter 7. The rich man now in hell says in verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, and he wants Lazarus to go, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that's exactly the case with the Pharisees here. They, they had the scriptures. They saw the signs that the scriptures pointed to, but they would not repent. And no sign, not even Jesus' resurrection, would be enough for them to cause them to repent. You see, the Word of God is really the most powerful tool that can bring someone to salvation. And so what we need to do is point people to the Word of God. That's the thing that God uses to grant repentance and faith and regeneration. And no evidence is going to be enough for people who aren't regenerated. You know, no evidence is going to be sufficient for them. They're going to continue to find ways to reject it until God powerfully works through His Word regenerating them and creating faith in their hearts. And so that was the Pharisees' evil demand. They wanted more evidence. They wanted to see a sign. And now let's see, second, the evidence-giving display in verses 39, second part of verse 39 and 40. 39 again says, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus says no sign is going to be given, and he's not going to cater to their evil demands. He knows again that their problem is an evil heart, not a lack of signs. And so he says no sign for you except this one, and that one is the sign of Jonah. Now, as we unpack this, we're going to see that it, it it's not really going to help them now. This isn't something for them on this day when they have this interaction. This sign is a future thing, and it refers to Jesus' resurrection. In the same way that Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so Jesus would be assigned to the Pharisees. You see, Jonah was assigned. The sign of the prophet Jonah was really Jonah himself. Jonah, if you think about it, Jonah didn't do any signs, but he was a sign. He became a sign through the miraculous deliverance that God worked for him. And so, you know, I I was kind of thinking about this. Do you do you know the story of Jonah? Do you know what happens there? And I I want you to kind of turn, and we're going to look as briefly as we can here at the story of Jonah. So we're going to go try to find Jonah here in the Minor Prophets. Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, I don't know if you, you know, kind of early 
early first six of the minor prophets there. Look at Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship among, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And so Jonah goes, when he's called here this first time, Jonah goes the opposite way. Nineveh is to the northeast, north of Babylon. Joppa is to the southwest from where Jonah lived. And so God says go northeast. Jonah goes southwest. Uh, he lived in, in Gath-Hefer, which is near Nazareth. And he's kind of going the opposite way towards the Mediterranean Sea. And from there, Jonah's going to sail away across the Mediterranean, really uh, away from the presence of the Lord, which he should have better theology than that. But he's, he's fleeing from the Lord, and he's, he's going to go really to Tarshish, which is really as far away as possible from Nineveh. And in chapter 4 and verse 2, we find out the reason why Jonah fled. He doesn't want God to have mercy on the wicked city of Nineveh. He doesn't want God to forgive and pardon the Ninevites, the Assyrians. And so you see in Jonah 4 and verse 2 that he prays to the Lord after they repent. And he says, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah wants disaster on these people, not mercy. He knows God's a merciful God. He knows he's, he's being sent there perhaps to, to preach to them that they might repent. And Jonah doesn't want to see them repent. And so Jonah goes the other way. But he gets on the ship. And of course, the Lord makes a great storm arise. And eventually it comes to light that the reason for the storm was because Jonah was trying to flee from the presence of his God. And he told the sailors that throw me overboard... And the, the minute it seems that Jonah is thrown overboard, the sea calms down. And so if you go back to Jonah and look at chapter 1 and verse 12, he says to the sailors that are, that are sailing him towards Tarshish, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and then the sea will quiet down for you for I know it is because of me that this great, great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Verse 16 then says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And then verse 17 says, and this is what Jesus quotes in, in this, in our text. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so the Lord appointed a storm for Jonah and then he appointed a fish. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And the idea here is that Jonah was as good as dead. They, they threw him in the sea and, and he's basically going to die and the fish then saves his life and delivers him from death. And when he came out of the fish and after those three days and three nights or that length of time, 
Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the, the message that I tell you. And the message that the Lord or that Yahweh gave him was in verse 4 of chapter 3. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And because of this preaching of Jonah, the city repented of their wickedness. And so if you look at Jonah 3 and verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And then chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And that brings us back to chapter 4 and verse 2, his prayer. Wasn't this what I told you, Lord? I knew you were gracious and merciful. I knew you would do this. That's why I tried to get out of town. And so that's the sign of Jonah. Let's, let's go back then to our text. Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites and his preaching caused that whole great city to repent. 120,000 people, the last verse of Jonah says, is, we're in that city. But, but look at our text again. Look at verse 40 again. It says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so here's the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so in the same way Jesus, the Son of Man, would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the wording there comes right from Jonah 1 and verse 17, this three days and three nights. Now there's a few things that, that we want to say about this. In the heart of the earth, where Jesus says he's going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, this refers to Jesus' burial. Jesus was crucified and buried in the heart of the earth. Now this brings up a problem, I think, for us, at least in our way of thinking, because Jesus was crucified at about noon on Friday, and he was on the cross until the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m. So noon on Friday till 3 p.m., Jesus died at 3 p.m. on Friday, and he rose again early Sunday morning, which makes three partial days and two nights in the way that we typically think about it. But the thing for us to know here is that the Jews didn't count days the way that we do in the West. They counted any part of a day as though it was the whole day. And so they might say three days and three nights, where, where we would say li more literally three days and two nights. Now later in Matthew, and I, I want you to just kind of turn here, and we could go, go all through the scripture and show this, but just kind of a little bit here in Matthew. Look at Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised or raised up on the third day. And we see again the same thing, the same third day language, Matthew 17, 22 and 23. As they were gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And so it seems as we think about this that neither Jesus nor Matthew see a contradiction between three days and three nights versus rising on the third day, which would be literally the way that we think about it, two, uh, three days and, and two nights. And even, even then it's three partial days, three, two half days and a whole day and, and two nights. But that's the way that the Jews just talked about time. Three days and three nights counted any part of a day. And so if, if, if it was even a little bit of the day was in there, they would count that as part of it. But here's really the remarkable thing as we go back to our text. What's happening here is Jesus is predicting that he's going to be in the earth, that he's going to be dead, but only, only if you think about it, only for three days. In other words, Jesus is predicting his resurrection here. He says, the, the, the only sign that you're going to get is the sign of my resurrection, which of course is only going to be after they crucify him and kill him. And so Jesus at this very early stage of his ministry knows that he's going to die and that he's going to rise on the third day. And his resurrection is going to vindicate him and show everyone that he is truly the Messiah, the Son of God. And so Jonah was thrown into the sea And he became a sign to Nineveh. Jonah was delivered from death in a sense. You can kind of think of it that way. And he came to Nineveh preaching a message of repentance. And so Jonah was almost killed. And then he was brought back for the salvation of Nineveh. And in a very similar way, Jesus, even in a greater way, actually, Jesus really truly was killed. And he was buried in the earth. And he was brought back for our redemption. And so Jonah almost died for Nineveh. Whereas Jesus actually died for us. Jesus died so that he could save his people from their sins. You see, our sins were a debt that we could never pay. Our sins put us under the wrath of God. Each and every one of us have sinned and that puts us under the wrath of God. Our sins must be punished because God is a holy God and he's a just God and he's a righteous God and therefore there must be a payment for sin. But instead of us paying for our sins forever in hell, separated from God, instead of that, Jesus paid the debt for us. Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross In our place, God the Father punished Jesus, His Son, for our sins. And He treated Jesus the way that we deserve so that He could treat us the way that Jesus deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. And the resurrection proves that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice and that our sins are forgiven in Christ. And the resurrection, Jesus is saying here, is the only sign that the Pharisees and the scribes would get. But again, they're not going to get that sign until later on. And on that day, on the day that Jesus and the Pharisees were talking, Jesus' answer here is basically no. And, and, and really, they're not going to understand this sign until in hindsight, they recognize that Jesus has risen 
from the dead. And so to summarize again, it's evil to ask for a sign and no sign is going to be given except the sign of Jonah. But they wouldn't really have understood that sign until after it happened. And so for that day, again, Jesus leaves them without a sign. But remember, even as you think about them without a sign, remember that he had done plenty of miracles and they should have known that he had fulfilled all of the scriptures that spoke about what the Messiah would do. And and that's really what we're going to see next. Jesus is going to escalate this thing. And I called this here the escalating declaration in verses 41 and 42. The escalating declaration. Look at what Jesus says in verse 41 and 42. He says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so Jesus here is picturing the final judgment, the the day of judgment, And this generation, and I'm I'm just going to keep calling it this generation because that's the way the text says it, but really from our perspective, we would say that generation, that generation of Israel that was speaking to Jesus at this moment in this text, but this generation are going to be there. And the men of Nineveh who heard Jonah preach are going to be there too on the day of judgment. And they're going to rise up and they're going to condemn this generation of Israel. And that word there, translated rise up, means to, it's, it's kind of a general word, even like our English word to rise up or to rise. It means to stand up or to raise something or even to, to raise someone up. But it, it's a flexible word, just like our English word, and it means to rise or to even stand up. But it was also used of resurrection. When somebody rose from the dead, you would say they were raised up or they rose up or they're going to rise up. And that seems to be what Jesus is talking about here. The Ninevites who repented at the preaching of Jonah are going to be resurrected and they're going to condemn this generation of Israel on the judgment day. And it's not that they're going to be the judge, that's Jesus' role, but instead their very presence there is going to be a condemnation to this generation because they repented and were saved, whereas Israel did not. Now what Jesus says at the end of verse 41, and again at at the end of verse 42, it's really amazing here. He says, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater. And he he says something rather than someone. And it's similar to what we saw in chapter 12 and verse 6. Look at at that there. Chapter 12, verse 6. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And in verse 6, that something, we, we talked about it, it, it refers to the whole ministry of Jesus Christ. His ministry is, or, or was, greater than the priesthood, greater than the ministry of the temple. And that's kind of a, a similar thing that's happening here. Jesus is saying that his ministry is greater than the ministry of Jonah. In other words, Jesus is saying, my preaching is better than the preaching of Jonah. And, and that's really a remarkable thing to say because if you think about it, Jonah was likely the most fruitful preacher or prophet in the Old Testament. You know, he was, he was angry about it and he wasn't happy about his fruitfulness. He was kind of against it. You know, and you could just imagine how, how like 
almost gleefully, he must have been preaching through Nineveh 40 days and you turkeys are destroyed, right? He just, but, but Jonah is really the most fruitful prophet in the Old Testament because the whole city of, of Nineveh, 120,000 people repented because of his preaching. Now, I don't, I can't think of another prophet that had such an impact. Now, if you think about this then, think about the, if, if Jesus is just a mere man, which he's not, think about the arrogance of this statement that he would say that something greater than Jonah is here. He's saying my ministry is greater than Jonah. For another prophet to say that would be unthinkable. Like Isaiah didn't say, you know, something greater than Jonah's here. Now, now we maybe think about Isaiah as being greater because he wrote a bigger book or whatever, but you think about Isaiah's ministry, mostly it was a ministry of hardening Israel's heart, not really leading anyone to truly to repentance. But Jesus knows who he is, and we've seen this throughout this gospel. Jesus knows who he is, and he knows that his ministry is greater than the ministry of Jonah, even though the Israel of his generation isn't repenting the way that the Ninevites repented at Jonah's ministry. You see, when you think about it, Jesus' message was actually the same message as the message of Jonah. It was a message of repentance. And he called Israel to repent. But even though something greater was happening with Jesus, Israel had not repented. Now Jesus says about the same thing with a different illustration in verse 42. And the queen of the south there is really the queen of Sheba. And she came, she too is going to rise at the day of judgment. Now there's a different word here to use for raising, rising up. And it's probably just a stylistic kind of a, a change here. But this word to rise up was also used to speak about resurrection. And the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba is going to condemn this generation because she heard about Solomon's wisdom and she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. At least one commentator said uh, apparently it's it's generally agreed that the that Sheba was where modern day Yemen is and I don't know if you would kind of know where that is but south of Saudi Arabia on the Indian Ocean kind of right on the ocean there. And to the Israelites of that day, it seemed like the end of the earth. Like that's basically as far south as you can go until you hit the ocean. And so the queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She came a long way to hear Solomon. Whereas if you think about it, the Pharisees, they didn't even have to travel very far, but they refused to hear Jesus. And again, Jesus says something greater is here. Something greater than Solomon is here and and he actually says behold something greater is here pay attention here look at this something greater than solomon is here and again the the audacity of that statement if jesus is just a mere man is really incredible you know we we think about david as the ideal king but solomon was spoken of as the wisest king and the most prosperous king in Israel's history. Now, although Solomon kind of turned to his sin and, and committed sin and God raised up enemies against him, Solomon's kingship was the, the greatest and widest kingship that ever happened that Israel ever experienced. And so it's quite a thing to say something greater than Solomon is here. In other words, somebody wiser than Solomon is here and a greater king than Solomon is here, but you guys aren't listening to the wisdom. The queen of Sheba came from 
south of Arabia to hear the, the wisdom of Solomon, you guys hardly will come from Jerusalem to hear something greater. And if we put this together again with chapter 12 and verse 6, where Jesus says something greater than the temple is here, what we have is that Jesus is saying that he and his ministry is greater than that of the priests, greater than that of the prophets, and specifically the prophet Jonah, and greater than the king Solomon. And so Jesus is greater than all three offices that required anointing. Remember, the office of prophet, priest, and king were all ministries, all offices that required an anointing. In other words, Jesus is the greatest anointed one, which is to say that he is the Christ or the Messiah, which means the anointed one. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the greatest anointed one, and I'm, I'm standing right here, the greatest ministry ever to live, to be on the earth is right in front of you. Or we could frame this another way as we take those same three examples, we could frame it this way, Solomon could represent wisdom, the Queen of Sheba came to hear his wisdom, And then we have Jesus then being greater than the priesthood and the temple, which represents the law. Jesus is greater than Jonah, who represents the prophets. And Jesus is greater than Solomon, which represents wisdom. And if we do it that way, what we see is, and, and what I need to explain something as we do this, the Jews divided their scriptures differently maybe than we do today. And they divided it into three sections. They had the law, which is the Torah, the prophets, the Navim, the prophets, and the writings, the Katuvim, which is the, the, which is Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ruth, and, and the various writings were, were kind of collected, and they called those the writings. They had the prophets, and they had the, the early prophets, and the later prophets, and the early prophets was books like Samuel and Kings, and the later prophets are the, are the, are the books that we typically think of as the prophets. And so if we divide it, Jesus is saying that in a sense, he's greater than even the the word of God, that he's greater than all of the representatives of scripture. But however we divide this up, Jesus is really claiming here the highest place. And this is what we need to think about. This is what we need to apply to our lives. Jesus is claiming again, the highest place above all anointed ones and even above all the representations of scripture. Now, nobody could claim this except for our Lord. This is, this is what belongs to our Lord. And so what Jesus is telling them is, I'm not going to give you a sign. I'm not going to prove my authority to you. But instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to restate it for you. And I'm going to say that I'm greater than all. And it should have been enough. I should have been enough to cause you to repent, to cause you to respond to the word of God. Because it took less to bring the wicked Ninevites to repentance. And it took less to draw the queen of Sheba from that pagan land from the ends of the earth to come and hear the wisdom of Solomon. But one greater than all of that is here. And so in a sense, our Lord just kind of doubles down here and says, I am the only sign that you need. I am the only sign that you need. And and you've seen the greatest sign before you of any people who ever lived And you refused to repent and you even blasphemed me saying that I was possessed by the devil and and you will be condemned. And so that's why I call this the escalating declaration. Jesus declares himself to be above all. And he's raising the conflict then to an even higher point. And he's saying, you want a sign? Well, the greatest sign that ever was is right in front of you. 
And I think what this shows us again is that we need to take Jesus's claim seriously. Jesus claims to be Lord. He claims to be worthy of our deepest love. He claims to be greater than all. He claims to be God, the son in human flesh who died and rose again for our salvation. Now we haven't seen him in the flesh, but he calls us to repent and follow him. He calls us to serve him as his disciples. And what we have is even, even in a sense almost better, we have the very word of God that shows us who this Christ is. Just as surely as if the living word was here, we have the word of God and that's enough of a sign for us. And so if we don't heed his word, if we don't come to Christ and if we don't serve him and if we don't worship him, we too will be condemned in judgment. You see, we have all the evidence we need as well. And it's right here in the word of God that shows us who our Lord Jesus Christ is. And now in verses 43 and 40 to 45, Jesus tells something of a parable here. And it's an illustration of the danger that Israel is in. And, and, and sometimes interpreters have, have trouble with this. And so I called this here the enig- enigmatic demonstration. Enigmatic demonstration. I, th- I think you know what an enigma is. Uh, an enigma is something mysterious or something that's puzzling. And so if something's enigmatic, it's, it's difficult to understand, difficult to interpret. And so the en- enigmatic demonstration, Jesus begins here by pointing to a, what, what I think we need to take as a hypothetical situation. Uh, a, a situation where a demon leaves a person. And maybe this demon was cast out of the person we're not really told. But the story that Jesus tells here is a demonstration of what's going to happen to Israel for their failure to repent and to come to him and follow him as his disciples. And it begins in verse 43. Look at it there. Jesus says, When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. And so Jesus begins by talking about what happens when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person. Now, I don't think we need to say that this always happens, but I think what, what we say is that this could potentially happen or this, this maybe had happened. We're not really sure. There's a, a possibility here that Jesus presents to the Pharisees. And this unclean spirit goes out. And again, we're not told why or how it goes out, but it goes out and it doesn't matter how or why it goes out. Maybe Jesus cast it out. Maybe it went out on its own. It doesn't really matter to the story. But this demon is out and it's, it's looking for a place of rest. And unclean spirits, for whatever reason, are often pictured in waterless and barren places. And so it's kind of looking in, in the places that it maybe goes, whatever th- this place is. And it, it's not finding any rest in these normal places where maybe it finds rest. And so we've got an unclean spirit without a person and it's restless. And the unclean spirit in verse 44 has a little talk with himself so that we can understand what's going on. And he says there in itself, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty or yeah, empty, swept and put in order. And so he's going to go back to his former home, which is the person that we saw in verse 43. And apparently this person is cleaned house. He's cleaned person. He cleaned up his life in some way, whatever this is, and, and without a demon, you know, people are generally a little more cleaned up and organized than they maybe normally were at other times, whatever that means. And so the unclean spirit comes back and the, the house person is empty and swept and organized. 
And the, the person's been, you know, as you guys like to say, keeping Saturday. The person's been cleaning his house on Saturday. And so the demon's house is this person, the unclean spirit's gone, and the person is clean, but, but he's empty. So hey, I can, I can just move right back in. And so nothing replaced the demon. The demon left, but nothing replaced it. And I think we understand this as this person hasn't been saved. This person hasn't become a disciple of Christ. This person isn't indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Nothing positive has, has filled the void left by the demon, even though it's kind of cleaned up and swept and put in order. And so there's some kind of reformation in this person's life. But the demon can come right back in. And so look at verse 45. Maybe this person is too clean now for the unclean spirit. And so in verse 45, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So so also will it be with this evil generation. And so the unclean spirit says it's too clean or whatever he says, and he's, he's for whatever reason, Jesus doesn't tell us, he's going to go get seven spirits more evil than itself. And seven is the number of perfection, and the idea here is that he's going to get the perfect amount of evil spirits, and they're going to be even more evil, and now there's even more of the more evil, and so you get the picture, it's going to be worse off. This hypothetical man is in a worse place than he was before. Before, he only had one demon, now he's got seven Worse demons, he's got eight demons, and they're worse. And these worse demons are going to dwell there, which kind of has the idea of a permanent settling down. They're going to move into this person, and they're not going to leave like they did last time. And so the man went from one demon to eight demons. Seven of them are worse than the first one, and so there's seven worse spirits. Now, what is this referring to? Look again at verse 45. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. And so this is an illustration that compares, again, this generation, which is to us, it's that generation, to the state of the demon-possessed man. And after a brief good reform by initial removal of the demon, things got worse for the man because worse demons moved in. And in the same way, if you think about it, Jesus did some good in Israel. Jesus removed some demons. Remember, Jesus was casting out demons all over the place. And so he was literally casting out demons of Israel. But without true repentance and faith, and all all that's going to happen here is that Satan is going to move back in when Jesus leaves, when he's crucified. Israel is going to be worse off than they were before. And that's really, I think, all that we're meant to take from the story. It's a, it's a parabolic kind of story that tells us about what's going to happen to Israel once the Messiah leaves, because they've rejected Christ. Jesus had cleaned house, but the evil would come right back because there was nothing to keep the evil from coming back. And so this is another warning, another warning to those people who were listening there that day, a warning again to those who saw themselves as neutral towards Jesus. See, these neutral people might say, well, I'm not a disciple of Jesus, but I'm not against him. But the reality was they were and and are, anyone who thinks they're neutral towards Jesus, they are only a cleaned out home for the devil. You see, without Jesus, Israel was, was basically an open house for Satan and his demons. And that's really a scary thought for us. Uh, You're just an open house for Satan 
If you haven't come to Jesus Christ and repented and and been filled with the Spirit. And so there's no neutrality again. Jesus is saying there's no neutrality when it comes to me. You're either an open house for the devil and his angels, or you are a disciple of Christ filled and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Again, this reminds us of chapter 12 and verse 30, where Jesus says, whoever is not against me and whoever, whoever, sorry, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so we've seen here, first of all, the evil demand. The scribes and the Pharisees demanded a sign. They tested Jesus by asking for more evidence when they had enough evidence in front of them. Then we saw the evidence giving display. Jesus told them that the only sign that they would get was the sign of Jonah. That he would die and be buried and into the heart of the earth, but only for three days. And then like Jonah, he would be delivered. He would be resurrected. And then they would have their sign. And then Jesus made the escalating declaration number three. Jesus told them that they would be condemned by the Ninevites of Jonah's day. They would be condemned by the queen of Sheba from Solomon's day because those people responded to the messengers that God had sent them, whereas Jesus' generation didn't respond to the even greater messenger, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we saw, fourthly, the enigmatic demonstration. Verses 43 to 45, the story about the demons returning shows that Israel is going to be worse off They've rejected their king and now they're, they're empty and swept clean. The demons have left the land for a while, but they're going to come back and it's going to be even worse than before. And what I want to come back to then in closing is just this sign of Jonah, which is again the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have this sign, right? We know the sign. We know about the resurrection of Christ. And this sign is really an encouragement to our faith. And we have this sign in the Word of God, the truth of the Scriptures. And so we know about the resurrection of Christ. And the sign is ours. Jesus is alive from the dead, and He is with us in this world until the end of the age. And Jesus is alive then today, and He is building His church. And so our gospel is confirmed by the resurrection. Our hope is sure because of the resurrection. And our victory is guaranteed by the resurrection. The resurrection shows us that Jesus is God in human flesh. He is our Savior. And when we boast, our boast is in the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered sin and death and hell by rising from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that it shows us who he truly is. We thank you for this passage that we are able to study today and We ask that we would be encouraged by the resurrection, that our faith would be strengthened, knowing that that Jesus Christ is alive. And we pray that you'd help us to share that hope of the resurrection with the world, and that you would use us to bring people to repentance, just like you used Jonah the prophet, that you would do a mighty work in our time and our day, and that you would save this generation from their wicked ways through us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.